Yeah. So you're you're a student, are you? You're um, undergraduate. That's right. Yep. Good. Terrific. Yep. And what are you what are you studying? I study history and German. Oh, excellent. And I find as well the it's a mistake philosophy <laughs> or something like that would have been great. No, that's no, that's good. There's still a lot that's interesting. Hello and welcome to Insight Cambridge, a podcast that takes you inside Cambridge to hear about interesting things from interesting people. For this episode, I was delighted to talk to Dr. Arif Ahmed, who apart from being a philosopher here at Cambridge, also sits on the advisory council of the recently formed Free Speech Union. Last year, he successfully tabled amendments to the university statutes, which in his view will help protect freedom of speech. I caught up with him to ask about the amendments and why he thought he needed to table them. Last year, you proposed three amendments to the university statement on freedom of speech. Mm. What were they and why did you propose them? Yeah. Uh, so maybe I should start by saying a little bit about the background. Um, the university had proposed a statement on freedom of speech. There had, in fact, been one on the university website since 2016. Um, but the university proposed to update it. Um, and it was in response to that updated version that I proposed the amendments that I did. Um, now, the updated version that the university was proposing included various things that I found objectionable. And there were things that were objectionable in the original statement that I thought it would be worth trying to address as well. Um, so let me just say what they were. First of all, there was the issue regarding um, respect versus tolerance. The university statement uh, as proposed included phrases like this. It said that in exercising freedom of speech, the university expects students, staff, and visitors to respect um, the differing opinions and identities of others. And the problem with that was that um, uh, the notion of respect, I thought, um, was dangerously vague. Um, and in fact, in some cases, it clearly was, requiring respect clearly was going to prohibit visitors um, or even people in this university um, from saying things uh, uh, or promoting points of view that were perfectly legitimate and certainly legal. Um, for instance, with regards to religion, with regards to important political issues like Israel and Palestine, sexual ethics, um, and a whole range of other, other issues. So that was the first amendment that I proposed to change the requirement for respect to a requirement for tolerance. If you just look in the dictionary definition, you know, respect implies some kind of appreciation or admiration or liking, or certainly not a willingness to criticize or mock, whereas toleration, or tolerance rather, just means that you're willing to put up with something, you will accept its existence, um, but you don't have to like it, um, and you're perfectly permitted to criticize it as harshly as you like. So that was the first amendment. Uh, there were then two other amendments. So the second amendment um, was really an addition of a phrase to the statement, um, clarifying the university's duty with regard to what's been called no platforming. Um, so under the Education Act number two, 1986, um, it's already the case that universities have a duty, at least according to the current guidance, uh, that any speaker who's been invited to speak at a meeting or other event um, at university premises or at the student union must not be stopped from doing that unless basically they're going to, they're going to break the law. Um, now, that, that requirement seems to have been flouted on a number of occasions quite recently, most recently at Oxford University in uh, 2020, um, though at other places as well. 
And this, by including an explicit statement to the effect that the university's policy is that you cannot disinvite someone once they've been invited, um, unless they're going to break the law, um, that basically prohibits this kind of no, no platform. That was the Second Amendment, which wasn't responding directly to anything in this new statement, but it was just adding something which I think was, was, was going to be helpful to add. Mm -hmm. And then the Third Amendment, uh, in effect, changed the conditions under which the university could refuse to allow a speaker event um, to take place. So the, the proposed statement allowed the university to prohibit speaker events on grounds like this, that they pose a risk to the welfare of, or they believe that, the, that they propose a risk to the welfare of health or safety of members, students, or employees of the university, to visitors or to the general public. Now, the problem with that is that um, uh, the word welfare is so vague that it could be used to prevent just about anyone from speaking. I mean, in this particular case, I was especially concerned, I guess, with views that are regarded as transphobic. That is to say, views of people who perhaps think that, that sex is more important than gender when determining the difference between men and women, let's say, um, which have been regarded as, as being damaging to the welfare of certain groups. Also, you might think someone who wishes to speak about Israel and Palestine might be regarded as posing, as, as, um, posing a risk to the welfare of, of Jewish people or to the welfare of Palestinian people, depending on what they're going to say. So I replaced, the, the amendment was to replace that text with um, uh, a text that was essentially taken from the so-called Chicago Statement, uh, which is the free speech statement that the University of Chicago adheres to, um, which makes very clear that the grounds on which the university can restrict speaker events are very narrow, not open-ended, um, and that there is a general principle of freedom of expression um, to which the university must always adhere, and also that it's utterly committed to the completely free and open discussion of ideas. So that Third Amendment, in effect, severely restricted the grounds on which the university could prevent speaker events from taking place. Mm -hmm. And is it safe to take from that that you feel that free speech is kind of under threat at universities or has been? Why the need for your amendments? Yeah, exactly. Of course, these, these amendments weren't existing in a vacuum. Um, they come in, in the sort of context of various things that have happened, um, both in Cambridge and elsewhere. Um, I mean, you, you know, I could give you a lot of examples, but just to take some examples from Cambridge, there was a case in 2017 when the, um, uh, uh, the university itself imposed a chair on a student meeting by, I think, the Palestine Society to discuss Israel and Palestine. Um, because they thought um, there was there was a risk of extremism or something from the chair who the, the students had asked for, who was herself an academic um, from the University of London. So the university imposed its PR manager as a chair instead. Um, so that was one case where the university actually directly interfered with freedom of speech on, on an issue which is about as important as any other. Um, another case, um, and there were some other cases that took place more recently. I mean, the ones, the most recent ones um, that were probably in many people's minds were the two that took place in early 2019. Um, one of them was the issue about Jordan Peterson, and the other one was to do with the sacking of Noah Carl from St. Edmund's College. Now, I'll say a little bit about that second case, the sack of, of Noah Carl. Obviously, there are issues to do with on, on that, um, which I can't comment on. But one thing mm -hmm. I will say is that after he was fired, the master of the college released a statement which said that one of the reasons for the firing was that his appointment could lead 
directly or indirectly to the college being used as a platform to promote views that could incite racial or religious hatred. Now, if saying or writing or doing things that could lead indirectly to your host institution being used as a platform to promote views that could incite religious hatred is grounds for sacking someone, um, then pretty much anyone who writes in strong terms about pretty much any religion is going to be at risk because that's such an absurdly broad um, uh, 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 statement regarding the grounds on which you could you could actually sack someone um, from a college. So that was I found that part of that statement especially chilling, um, and that was just another episode um, in uh, you know in, in a sequence of events, also others that have taken place at other universities. Um, that made me think that there was a serious threat to free speech in universities of all places. Although it's important to point out in Noah Carl's case, I, I think he's been accused as well just of poor scholarship. Which yeah, is, uh, there were other things yeah. too. And, and obviously there's more to say about that. I can't comment on those things. Um, mm. What concerned me was, was, was not so much that the, obviously that's, that's an issue between the college and him, but the fact that the college could even think of citing as part of a reason for sacking someone, that they're doing things that could lead indirectly the college being used in settlement. It wasn't even being likely to stir up hatred. It was it's something that could indirectly lead to something, regardless of the intention of the person who's doing it. In fact, more to do with the with the um the levels of violence or preparedness to violence um or hatred of the people of the audience. Um so for that reason I thought that was that was an aspect of that case that I found especially disturbing. And have you noticed personally in the course of your career that academics are somewhat more reluctant to do say teach certain things now than they were perhaps 10 15 years ago um it's interesting it's not so much that they're reluctant to teach things but it's that they're reluctant to say things um, or express certain views so a variety of views that I found, you know, I used to be able to discuss with people. Um, I found people are just reluctant to talk about that. I mean, a, a recent example, I guess, would be something like BLM. Okay, so the meth, the organisation BLM, obviously, uh, is controversial in various ways, and people will have a discussion about that. Certainly, have detected reluctance amongst many people, not everyone, but amongst many people, to to question its aims or methods. Um, I've already touched on the issue of transgender people. People people are practically terrified these days of questioning sweeping extensions of rights to transgender people. Um, similarly, with um, a, a more long-standing one, but again, one which seems to have become worse recently, is issues about Israel and the Middle East. So if people are now more reluctant, I think, um, to be quite vociferous about what they think about Israel's policy on settlements or the use of military force against Palestinians or even supporting things like um, uh, boycott and divestment um, against Israel. People are certainly more reluctant to do that now than they used to be. Um, another example is pro-life views. Um, though again, that's something that's been building up for a while. It's not just in university that I've noticed that there's been, been resistance even to allowing people to express those views. Um, and then another example, again, would be would be Brexit, for instance. So that's something that's been going on the last four or five years. But... Um, uh, there's no doubt at all that, especially somewhere like Cambridge, where I guess maybe 80-90% of academics were, were strongly in favour of Remain, um, people were simply afraid 
even sometimes senior academics, I think, were afraid to say that they were in favour of, of Brexit um, for fear of what their colleagues would think. But is that really a free speech issue, though? Because the right to speak freely is not the right to be insulated from all criticism or even from being shunned. I mean, there's always been fashionable and unfashionable opinions. Do you think there's something that's really different now? Or do you think it's kind of things are carrying on as they always have of some opinions are in vogue, some aren't? Yeah, I think, okay, so yeah, no, you're quite right that there's a distinction between you know, actually losing your free speech rights and um, being reluctant to speak um, because you think people won't like you or something. And obviously, the second the second is going to happen and we've just got to grow up and live with it. And you're quite right. If you're an academic, it's kind of your duty not to care that some people you're going to be unpopular among some people, you know, um, uh, and still still say what you think of the truth. Uh, so, no, I guess there there are two things to say about that. I mean, the first thing is that in the case of in the in some of the cases I discussed earlier on, there are genuine free speech infringements. I think with regard with regard to, to student meetings, etc. In these other cases, I think there's perhaps more of a spectrum, but the spectrum does range from you know on the one hand mere hostility through a range of sort of soft retaliations that people fear. For instance, in the case of academics, I would say things like not being promoted or things like not being recommended for membership of professional bodies. They're the sorts of things that matter to an academic's career, all the way to formal disciplinary action. And the worry is that in some cases there is a genuine infringement of people's free speech rights because they're being investigated by the in their universities by HR, um, maybe not in Cambridge, but in other places, and maybe it will come here as well. They're going to be investigated because somebody's reported them for hate speech um, or for saying something transphobic. Um, and people are people are frightened about that, and that's why people are saying less. I'm pretty sure that that's true, um, uh, uh, quite widely. Now, how well founded those fears are is another thing, and it may be that a lot of the time, if people just did come out and speak their minds more often, they find that actually, you know, um, uh, it wasn't as bad as they were fearing. But there's no doubt that the fear exists, and there's also no doubt that in many cases, the fear is about actual formal disciplinary action being taken against them. And there's also no doubt um, that at least in some universities in this country, um, formal investigations have been launched on the basis of things that mm -hmm. have been said. And where do you draw the line between free speech and hate speech? I suppose that the real question is, what is free speech? Mm. Mm. Well, I think the important thing about free speech is that there be nobody who directs the sorts of things that you can say so that you're... you're choice as to what to say is is up to you um, and it's not being determined by some external body. Now, speech clearly can't be entirely free because free speech, um, you know, that would ultimately infringe other freedoms. So if you think about, for instance, confidentiality requirements, that stops free speech. If you think about the things you can say in court, for instance, that's that stops free speech. So there are various obviously competing things which mean that you know, free speech cannot be and never has been you know, completely unrestricted. Um, so then the question becomes, where is the line to be drawn between the kinds of things that you can say and the kinds of things that you can't? And my own view is that it should be, A, should be drawn in a minimal way, but B, and almost as important, it should be drawn in a way that's completely clear in advance so that there's no scope or relatively little scope um, 
for individuals to blur the line one way or the other, depending on what they regard as, as, um, as acceptable. And now the problem with things like hate speech is if they're defined in a way that's utterly subjective, um, then it looks as though they also become, you know, not only do they become determined by the way in which somebody else might feel and what they regard as, as hateful or dangerous, um, but also they're open to this kind of abuse just as vague expressions are open to abuse because it means that what counts as, as prohibited speech ends up becoming a wider and wider category. Mm -hmm. But I suppose you use the word subjective there, as in if hate speech is defined mm. in a subjective way, of it comes to encompass more and more. But, mm. I, I mean, kind of human existence is in a way inherently subjective the line is always going to be you know whoever draws it whether society a king parliament university governing body whoever is always going to be subjective in the end so the mm -hmm. the question would be okay it's subjective but can you add anything more to that so if you were to take a uh, a particular example for example, Piers Corbyn has uh, recently been yep. arrested for, uh, I think, malicious communications, it's called, um, because of his yep. mock-up of the Auschwitz gates with uh, vaccines set you free instead of work sets you free. Is that Does that come under free yeah. speech or doesn't it? Um, yes, I think it does. So I think that... What the things? I mean, I only know a little bit about this case, but as I understand it, Piers Corbyn wasn't directly inciting violence. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't. You know, uh, uh, creating a frenzy in a mob to try and burn down someone's home, something like that. I mean, he was he was distributing material that's that's you know pretty disgusting um, uh, and and you know and and wrong as well. Um, but I think the line should be something like. You should prohibit speech that creates a clear and present danger of violence or harm. Um, where well, that means things like, you know, shouting fire in a crowded theatre or inciting a mob to burn down somebody's house. Um, he wasn't doing either of those things, he wasn't even coming close. Um, what he was doing was, was awful and wrong um, by various standards, um, but I don't see why free speech legislation should get involved with something like that. Mm -hmm. And going away from legislation mm. or at least national statute to university mm. statute, if the inherently subjective line is don't incite violence and create immediate danger, if we had that standard at Cambridge, you'd, I suppose you could have an openly racist academic teaching. I mean, that might not be popular, mm. but if he or she didn't incite violence... If, if that were the line, the line that we actually have, so the line of the amendments that I proposed, is basically that the speech has to be legal. Um, so in a way, it's sort of, you know, rather than defining the line itself, um, it leaves to Parliament the problem of defining the line. So that whatever is actually legal, pretty much, you can say. So certain kinds of racist speech, I think, would not be, would not be permitted in university because they're not legal. Um, uh, whether somebody who is in fact racist ought to be permitted to speak um, is another question, depending on what you know what they say. Um, but 
certain certain kinds of speech that are in any case not legal, the university couldn't. You know, there's no way the university um, could permit that to be, mm-hmm. to be taught in the lecture. But in in your view, what hmm. what is legal should be that which doesn't incite violence or create danger. Pretty much, yeah. That's 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 kind of where I think the line the line should be drawn. So it should be drawn in a in a very narrow place. And part of the advantage of that is also, as I said, um, that it it um, it's reasonably clear. I mean, you're right that in a way everything is subjective, um, but some things are kind of less subjective than others. So there are some things where there's some ways of drawing the line where there's perhaps less room for subjective judgment and more. You know, it's it's more possible to know in advance. What is and what isn't going to go over the line? And you were saying for, um, I think your second amendment, it was you thought that the use of the word welfare mm. too broad and expansive. Mm. Uh, but why is that? Why should somebody's right to say what they want come over somebody else's right to feel safe and comfortable in a place of work or education? Uh. I think part of it, uh, well, part of the reason in this particular case is to do with the point of university. Um, So one part of the point of having a university in the first place is that you get exposed to views that you find uncomfortable, um, that you might well find offensive. Um, I mean, particularly in a subject like mine, um, certainly ones that that might very well shake your whole conception of who you are um, and what society is, um, um, you know, uh, the value of, of the things that have mattered to you, um, so that, for instance, you know, there is a sense in which being made, somebody being made to feel sufficiently uncomfortable, one has compromised their welfare. Um, now, why is that important? Well, because at a university, you can only learn things, you know, um, and form your own values once your existing values have been challenged, so that you have a chance to think it through for yourself. Um, and that's only going to happen if, indeed, you are exposed to people who have perhaps violently different views. From your own. So, for that reason, I think it's important in a university setting at least that we should be valuing freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, and freedom of discussion mm-hmm. over um, the comfort of the, you know, the, the sort of emotional comfort of the participants. Just to be clear, since, uh, as you were saying, your amendments leave it to ultimately to Parliament to decide what the line should be. But you were saying, ideally, you, you think mm-hmm. that line ought to be what it always used to be until very recently in fact which was say what you like but don't incite violence yeah pretty much yeah i mean basically the line ought to be exactly it ought, it ought to be both clear and it ought to be drawn in a very narrow way i mean there might be there are obviously certain other things that you need to say so it can't just be don't incite violence so you have mm. to respect certain confidentiality interests for instance there have to be restrictions on what you can say in court um there have to be things that you can't reveal so if you think about for instance you know, if a judge imposes an anonymity order on something, you can't speak in a way that reveals that person's identity. So these are things that don't directly incite violence, but are nevertheless ought to be prohibited. So it's a, you know, I'm, I'm being very simplistic when I'm saying it's just not prohibiting violence. But the basic idea is that that's the basic principle, and there will be other things that are going to be necessary because of things like confidentiality and so on, um, and the, for the operation of justice. Um, and perhaps even in some cases for national security, though, again, I think it's, one needs to be very careful about that. Um, uh, but the basic idea is that is that the kind of speech that incites violence um, is the sort that ought to be, ought to be restricted. Which means, theoretically, 
by that logic, you'd be, if not happy, prepared to have academics with views that the majority, perhaps even the vast majority, would find abhorrent. You know, you'd say it's regrettable in some ways, but in other ways, it's part of life, part of respecting freedom of speech, and in fact, could even be good if it produces a productive argument and gets people to think differently. Uh, in essence, yes, I think academics should be should be free to hold and, in fact, to express a whole very wide range of opinions. Um, should be able to discuss them. That's not that's not implying that anyone should like them for it, um, mm-hmm. or or even respect them for it. Quite the opposite. Um, uh, one could be free to disrespect them and be as rude to them as one likes. Um, uh, but having said that, um, I do think that means there should be formal restrictions on you know, not only the opinions they can hold, but the things they can say. So is it, there should be or shouldn't be formal restrictions. I think there shouldn't be there shouldn't be broad formal restrictions of the things that people that that people and perhaps especially academics can say. I mean, one thing I would add is that, of course, you know, in some ways it's important that the restrictions be even strong, the protections be even stronger for speech in the academic's own field. So that, for instance, someone someone who works on, for instance, um, uh, I don't know, someone who works on on evolution biology, let's say, or something like that, might have special protections for being able to to say things in that regard because it's their you know on that subject because it's their own their own field. And in gen so and in general, when people say I think that academics ought to have special free speech protections, I think those special protections, insofar as they exist, should be centered around that person's field of expertise, because that's what, what the point is of, of, of having it. Um, but generally, for academics and just for other citizens, I think there should also be very limited restrictions on the things that they can mm-hmm. say. And you said earlier, obviously, that um, your amendments didn't come out of nowhere. Things don't happen in a mm-hmm. vacuum. I mentioned as well that uh, what what used to be, I think, at least a fairly clear line of, you could say pretty much what you liked, except if it incited violence, seems to have blurred somewhat in the past few years um why mm. do you think that is where where do you see these kinds of pressures coming from mm. i think there's there's various pressures so one sort of problem i guess which goes back somewhat further is the state's increasing interest in what people can say and that goes hand in hand with the state's increasing surveillance um of people now, part of that, I guess, goes back to to nine eleven and, and the sort of concerns about security that people had um, uh, after that point. Um, so that's that's one sort of source of of this kind of issue, and we find it now. For instance, the sort of successor to that is the prevent duty on public institutions, for instance, on on universities, um, and the kinds of restrictions that arise from that. So that's one one area. One thing and um, prevent is sorry yeah so prevent is a statutory duty on universities to prevent people from being drawn into uh, drawn into extremism um mm-hmm. where that you know in order to, to reduce the risk of, of terrorism um and part of that in the case of universities means certain restrictions on the kinds of speakers that they can have um and that they must also always be aware of the risk of people being drawn in um uh, drawn into this thing that was that that's the kind of thing for which we've got a prevent committee um, which can, in principle, stop events from taking place. Um, so that's one of the things behind it uh, is this sort of um, increased state intrusion, um, partly because of concerns to do with national security. 
Um, another thing, um, there's no doubt, has been the Equality Act 2010. So this is an act, obviously, which included various, which introduced various categories, protected categories, um, one of which was was belief, so philosophical religious belief, um, uh, but also race and other categories. Um, uh, and this in, in, this included a definition definitions of things like harassment for those groups, which obviously led to an increase in the number of complaints about things that people said. Um, for instance, you know, uh, via various media, I guess via Twitter and Facebook and so on, amongst others. So. That also was probably part of what's led to, to an increasing level of restriction on the things that people can say. Um, another part of it, I think, has been um, you know, various, various political concerns where people have used it uh, in order to restrict people, things that people can say on one side or another of a political issue. I'm thinking here about Israel and Palestine mm-hmm. um, and the sort of uh, increasing adoption, for instance, of the IHRA definition of, of anti-Semitism, um, I think there are quite well-founded fears um, that that's something that will restrict freedom of speech in that particular area. So those are some of the sort of developments that have been behind some of the more recent threats. Now, you might presume also be asking about bigger changes in society, cultural attitudes and so on um, that are further behind it, whether people really care as much as they used to about freedom as a value. Um, and I don't know about that. I'm not so sure. And people often say that students nowadays are more addicted to safety than they are about free discussion. But that wasn't so much my experience recently. So my experience last year was more that students, the the majority, or at least a very large number of them, actually do come to university so they can have debates about all kinds of things. And they expect um, uh, to be able, you know, to be asked to put up with people with all kinds of views that they find um, implausible, offensive, or even shocking. Um, but it may be that there's a small minority of students um, who are very keen to restrict the expression of others. Uh, and those are the ones who are responsible for disappearance. At least that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of students being up for engaging in arguments and debates with people Mm. who hold what they find implausible or shocking or offensive opinions. Mm -hmm. Do you think is worth making, there's a worthwhile distinction to be made in who exactly those people are. So if I think of Mm -hmm. me personally, Mm. uh, cards on the table, I'm a privately educated young white man. Mm -hmm. People can insult me, but I suppose ultimately it might be easier for those insults to bounce off somebody like me because of uh, inbred mm-hmm. socio-cultural attitude that yeah, fundamentally it will be all right in the end. But do you think if you belong mm-hmm. to a social minority, particularly one that's been oppressed uh, historically or even now, it, it's worth thinking about people like that in a different way and going, actually, you can't just say people should be up for uh, offensive and sometimes even shocking arguments. There is actually, it's easier for some to engage in arguments like that. And we ought to think about uh, about the others who, who don't find it so easy for whatever reason to engage in those kinds of discussions. 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is to do with it, with getting people to react in some ways rather than others, where certain kinds of reaction can become habitual, can become learned, or can also be discarded. So, for instance, um, if you think about something like, I don't know, um, uh, claims that, so in my own field, claims that philosophers like Hume and Kant and so on were racists or were anti-Semitic mm. or whatever, um, and you might think, well, it's all, you know, it's all very well for privileged people like you and me to dismiss those as not very important. But supposing that you're in one of the groups that they, they denigrated, um, you know, um, uh, uh, it's, not so, it's perhaps not so easy to dismiss it. Um, now, in that case, I think the answer is, well, you know, there are different kinds of responses you can have to that. But one response would just be, it goes to show how human and fallible these people are, rather than thinking, oh, it means that I'm being oppressed every time I have to study them at all. Um, so that, you know, part of feeling oppressed and part of feeling, feeling you know, attacked, um, when we're talking here about what you're doing as part of a university curriculum, I think is, is a choice, you know, and it's maybe, maybe not easy, but I think it is in part a choice. You don't have to feel oppressed by everything around you. You know, you can take a bit more of a relaxed attitude. Now, that's not to say, and it certainly isn't true, that you know, there are people in, in all kinds of groups who are marginalized and attacked, even somewhere like this, um, in really awful ways. Um, so, of course, there is genuine racism happening um, in Cambridge now, um, in this country now, um, and we should be very severe about it. Um, but that's quite different from saying that people in these groups are always right or can always legitimately claim that they're being attacked by, for instance, simply being taught the work of someone who happened in some of the things they said to be racist. That's not an attack on you. That's just, you know, just reveals something unfortunate about, about the people that you're studying. Yeah, so we should be severe on racists alive and kicking now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the actual actual racism, you know, of course, it exists. And, of course, it's something that, that we mm-hmm. need to address. But, um, you know, teaching someone who happens to have said something's racist is not itself, is not itself racist. Mm-hmm. Now, the other sort of thing that I guess you had in mind was things like arguments about um, uh, um, the actual status of people, um, you know, who are, in, who are in groups, who are in marginalized or oppressed groups. So if you think about, for instance, let's say issues to do with transgender, that would be an mm-hmm. example. Um, and there you might find that transgender people would say, yes, I am being attacked when people have arguments about these things. Um, but the point there is that it is really important to carry on having these arguments and discussions um, because it makes a massive difference. So it makes a difference to things like, I don't know, can you consent to being given puberty blockers before you're, before you're 16? You know, it makes a big difference to people's lives whether you can or not. And, and we've, seen, we've seen recently what happened with that or what's, you know, what sort of rights should people have if they're transgender. We need to be able to have a rational discussion about these things that takes into account the welfare of all mm-hmm. groups, um, including cisgender women as well as transgender women. Um, and the importance of having that sort of debate, I think, trumps um, the feelings of, of being oppressed or not being made to exist um, by the very occurrence of that debate. Because the alternative is that the debate just gets shut down. And we as a society end up going down a certain path um, you know, without actually considering um, any alternative possibilities. And as we've already seen, for instance, in the Tavistock case, that can be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to 
briefly pick up there on the Tavistock case for people who may not have heard of it. Mm. You, you're thinking there of um, essentially children who are given puberty blockers too young and then revise their decision and obviously yeah. what's done is done. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, exactly. So it was it was a case where I believe these things are uh, if if not if not um, irreversible, you know, pretty mm-hmm. harmful. Um, and in the case, you know, you know, they, they said you probably can't consent if you're below sixteen to having these things, um, and so the operation of that clinic in that respect was stopped straight away. Um, but it made, yeah, it made it made a massive and I expect permanent difference to many people's lives, um, and that it just illustrates why it's important that we be free, we be able to have debates about these things. You know, it would be a disaster if we were to shut down debates about topics like that um, because they're vitally important though it is i think logically speaking perfectly possible to discuss the ins and outs of prescribing puberty blockers at whatever age it is and what legal rights and protections transgender people should or shouldn't enjoy without actually questioning whether they exist or not without getting into a massive debate about the nature of existence yeah, no, of course, you're, you're absolutely right there. Of course, that's logically possible. Um, but people do, uh, you know, if people claim that it's a way of questioning their existence, um, or if people feel that it's a way of questioning their existence, then they might regard that kind of debate as something that was oppressive or harmful to them. Um, so I guess, but of course, you're perfectly right on the logical point. Yeah. You know, <laughs> questioning somebody's rights is not questioning their existence. It, exactly, which is, at least if we went by the... Uh, definition of freedom of speech we were using earlier which is with some modification but essentially Mm. say what you like but don't incite violence you can question somebody's very existence Mm. that's protected by freedom of speech uh well you could say i mean if if, i suppose what 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 would it mean to question somebody's existence if you say well i don't think you exist um uh (laughs) well the the way you define yourself is i think ontologically incorrect yep. you're right. you're living in an Absolutely. illusion so for instance supposing that i was having a debate supposing i was having a discussion with with a christian and that actually you know the sort of sort of person who and i have had debates with people like this whose whole existence is organized around their christian faith mm-hmm. um and i tell them what i think about their christian faith um that would count as denying their existence in this sense um and absolutely mm-hmm. i think that should be that should be allowed because as i said you know Perhaps the most important things that we should be allowed to, be, we should be able to debate, are things that are fundamental to people's lives, um, because in a way, it's a way, it's a way of, of becoming autonomous and becoming fully human is thinking through what's most basic and what matters to you most. Um, and if we can't do that, then these parts of people's identities will remain, you know, um, the ones that they got when they were children and never really thought 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 them through properly. So, yeah. I absolutely think we should be able to question people's existence in that sense. And how do you balance the right to freedom of speech with the right of private institutions or clubs to set their own rules? So, you know, as an obvious example, do you think Twitter can or Mm. should have got rid of Trump? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, freedom of speech is not the same thing as, you know, <laughs> being able to speak wherever you, uh, you know, being able to speak in any any private setting that you like. So you can have free speech, but you can't demand that this or that 
private organization let you use its medium for speech. So those are those are two two quite different things. And certainly, you know, Trump's free speech rights were not being infringed in the sense that there were plenty of other, I mean, he was the president of the US, so obviously there are plenty of other places where he could have said um, all the mm-hmm. things he wanted to say, as indeed he did. Um, so um, uh, uh, that's, that's one point to make. And of course, the same point could be applied um, to other groups who have, who have quite as much, who have as much visibility as Trump. On the other hand, um, you might think that there are some media, you know, there's such as there's, there might be a small group of media, you know, which constitute a very large part of, of the communicative methods that people want to use. Um, you know, if you think of, of of Twitter, Facebook, and a few others, you know, it's not like they they have any rivals. So um, one thing that I think there may be a case for doing is not for government the government to say, oh, Twitter has got to let let on anyone who wants to be on it. That's their private company; they can do what they want. Um, but perhaps to be involved in things like antitrust laws so that there isn't a monopoly um, or there isn't some kind of cartel of a very small group of firms um, that are providing these platforms. Um, now, that was indeed what happened in the case of, of Twitter. I believe that they set up or that there exist alternative such platforms. Um, but whether they're viable or whether whether these sort of companies that have a monopoly will try and destroy them, I don't know. But it's the way to solve that problem is not, I think, to stop. So, for instance, Twitter stopped this, um, you know, it's recently expelled an anarchist bookshop because there were there were protests by Antifa in, in I think, Portland or somewhere. Um, and following the arrests after that, they, they expelled um, an anarchist bookshop, a bookshop of all things, you know, um, uh, from Twitter. So it works, you know, they're, 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 it's the left as well as the right um, who are getting it from this. But as I said, the response to that is not, I think, to say that a private company ought to allow X, Y, and Z onto their platform, but rather to allow there to be a variety of private companies so that people people do actually have opportunities. If they're, you know, they're cooked off one place, they can go on to somewhere else. And in the university context, what is it really a free speech issue if, for the sake of argument, the Cambridge Union were hoping to invite person Y and then they reconsider? Right, I mean, assuming this person has a big public profile and they usually do, perfectly happy and able to go on YouTube and say whatever they want to say, is that a free speech issue or is it confusing two different issues or not? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is that obviously, uh, well, the Cambridge Union isn't, I think, a formal part of the university. It's a private club, but some, you know, mm. imagine a university body which you could say exactly the same. That person's free speech rights in that case are not being curbed. That's correct. However, the intellectual life of the students is being curbed. And mm. indeed, the platform the platform is not being denied really to them. The platform is being denied to the students who could have seen them because um, they could have asked them questions um, and they could, have, they could have heard the discussion and taken part in the discussion. That's what's being denied. So whilst there is, it is worth making a distinction between denying somebody's speech rights, you know, you're not, by, by not inviting someone, you know, or by disinviting them, you're not stopping them from speaking at all because, of course, they can speak in other places. Um, but you are curtailing the intellectual lives of the students and you are introducing, you know, the way that these things work, you end up introducing more and more of an intellectual monoculture in your own university. So that's what's wrong with those things, is that they impoverish the intellectual life of the host institution, not that they prevent the invited person from speaking elsewhere. And you are a member of the advisory council for the Free Speech Union. Mm. Uh, So you're obviously 
recognize and understand it's kind of a hot political topic which like it or not people end up taking sides in now it's not one of those things that's just kind of assumed mm. uh, freedom of speech that is whether and how it ought to play out i wonder for you personally mm. what what made you want to join that organization was it more the rights-based argument of people ought to have the right to say what they want to say or was it more the kind of intellectual argument as in the what you had just said of if we don't invite people with whom we disagree regardless of whether there's a right to freedom of speech or not it impoverishes us and stops us from arguing and debating and growing i think uh it's a combination of things um so the the free speech union is obviously i think it does great work and it's very attractive to me um not only because of issues in universities many of which we've, we've discussed but also because of more more general drift of, of society um my value for free speech itself i guess is partly that it's necessary in order for a democracy to function i think partly because mm -hmm. for the sort of reasons that john stuart mill gave in many cases though not in all cases um free speech is indeed conducive to get into the truth of things um even allowing the speech the free speech of people who are wrong um uh, uh it's you know it's, it's very important to productive inquiry but also when you think about what the alternative would look like so any regulatory regime with regards to speech would have to be run by someone okay it's not being run by god or someone who's got the direct line to the ethical truth it's going to be run by by human beings who have their own interests and their own agendas um and it's all too easy to look to imagine that we don't even have to imagine we've seen from the past the potential for abuse that you can get as soon as the sort of regulation of speech is put into the hands of, of politicians. Um, so the alternative is very dangerous. Um, and that's obviously one of the things that's behind my concern for, for free speech. I mean, quite aside from the question of whether these things ever work in the way that they're, the way that they're supposed to. Also, more broadly, there are issues to do with things like surveillance uh, in this country um, and uh, um, the scope of 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 not just the, how how narrow is the speech that you can make but also where you can where you can make it so as you know for instance there's this proposal from the law commission um to remove the dwellings exemption so that it will become you know certain kinds of speech which would have been illegal to make in public will now also according to this proposal um be illegal to make in your own house um that seems to me to be terrifying um again uh, increased police activity with regards to people's speech. So you'll know about the case of, of um, Harry Miller, was it last year? It concluded last year. Um, uh, and the whole category of non-crime hate incidents as well as hate crimes. So these are things where the police can just come and, and check up on you just because something's been reported. Um, and then that will go in your record and it will be available um, uh, for um, certain kinds of, of barring checks. So Again, that's something which I think is is terrifying because it's a kind of state intrusion on our behaviour. Um, all of that separate from the specific issues with regards to universities that I that I discussed, um, many of which in my own case are to do with, for instance, religion. You know, I want to be able to free to criticise Islam as much as you know Christianity and, and Judaism. Uh, you know, um, that being one of my, my professional interests. Um, 
uh, as well as, of course, you know, because it's because my subject is philosophy, obviously, it's just not going to work unless you feel completely free in the course of the supervision to challenge students on absolutely anything, especially the things that are most important to them. I just can't do my job unless I'm able to do that. Um, so it's of a special importance to me um, that these rights are protected in the university, but also it's something that matters to me greatly um, that we fight back against the increasing encroachment on this right in our society more broadly. If, hypothetically, there were someone with a direct line to the ethical truth, would it then be possible to dismiss freedom of speech? Yeah, I mean, if, if, we, could have, if we could all be run by angels rather than, rather than by, by human beings, as is our situation, um, uh, it would be an interesting question. No, I don't think so, because I think there are other things, like, for instance, creativity. You know, human creativity is an essential part of of the human condition and what makes life worth living. Um, and creativity is always sparked by exposure to all kinds of, of you know, unexpected um, uh, uh, sources, which might include written, spoken, artistic, and other things. All of that would be lost if in an atmosphere of, of restriction on what we can say, um, even, it was control, even if it was controlled by God himself. Um, yeah. So f- free speech for you is about taking the rough with the smooth you have to tolerate not respect tolerate pretty unpleasant and even offensive views in order that hopefully something of some interest or creativity might get worked out or said somewhere along the way well i expect many things will be but um one uh one thing i would say is that does it does restricting it ever work i mean is there ever going to be a way of drawing a line you know um which rules out exactly the things that you think are bad and going to do harm without keep, you know, without also ruling out a whole load of other stuff. Thoughts that, you know, things that never get said or written, and perhaps ultimately, you know, things that never get thought either. Um, because the best way to control a person's thoughts, I think, is to control their behavior until eventually we get to a point where you just have a habit of not saying things um, and perhaps ultimately not even thinking them um, because you're worried about what might happen. Uh, so, um, the way you put it, I think, is correct, except statistically speaking, you know, you might expect, you know, we just don't know how much has been lost if you have mm-hmm. laws, restrictions about what can be said. We don't know because these are thoughts that will never be had, perhaps, or things that will never be said. Um, so we stand to lose a great deal, um, but no obvious gain if we continue down the path that we're on. And finally, because you've already been very generous with your time, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, if you put yourself in the position of your political and intellectual opponents, at least on this issue, for a sec, and mm. imagine you are the president of a college student union somewhere and a member of staff makes mm. a transphobic or racist statement or a statement which the vast majority of us would find objectionable and perhaps even abhorrent. And you think this member of staff ought to resign. How would you argue for that? How would I argue? How would you justify that? <laughs> so how would I argue for the position opposite to the one I actually hold? Is that what you're saying? Yep. <laughs> um, I think, okay, so if I, if I was supposed to argue for that, I guess I would say, uh, I would say something like this, that, um, uh, you know, staff in a college um, uh, have a duty to look after their students um, and, Students need to have faith in them that they will look after their they will look after their own interests. Um, 
So if a member of staff has clearly holds certain views that they prefer some groups to others or that they hate a certain group or they think, you know, they think rights should be taken away from that group, then people won't feel uh, confident to approach them, for instance, in tutorial context, so that it will compromise their ability to do their job. Um, I think that's probably the sort of argument that I would say if I wanted to get a person sacked um, for their, mm -hmm. you know, for the for the beliefs that they held. Um, I hope I'm never in that position. <laughs> and do you see any truth to that argument? Could you see it being an impediment to someone doing their job in college? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think if if there are if you can argue that a certain person's beliefs um, uh, you know prevent them from doing their job, then that might be a reason for them not to have their job. But I just think it would be very hard to argue that um, in any case with any great conviction. So, for instance, if you think about the example, I mean, the example of this porter at, at, at Clare recently that seemed disgraceful because the comments he made were, were I thought. In any case, very, very mild um, and full of sort of understanding and compassion. He wasn't. He wasn't the person trying to. Uh, there's a Mr. Kevin Price, a, yeah. is a porter at Clare, and also a, a Labour councillor. That's right. It was, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It uh, didn't seem to me to be trying to attack or victimise anyone. Um, or the attack and victimisation, I believe, was on the other side in that case. Mm -hmm. And just for people who are not up to speed with that case, he, what, what was it? He was accused of and. What happened? So there the was end. there was like there's an accusation of transfer. I don't know all the details of the case of what's happened mm -hmm. since then, but my understanding is there was an accusation of of transphobia um, uh, against him because you know because he he um, resigns as a councillor because his his objection to certain policies um, with regards to the trans issue. Um, so you know students thought he was transphobic. They wanted him sacked. Um, but my belief is that that's all, you know, that's, that threat has now gone away. I certainly hope so. It would have been disgraceful if anything had happened to him. E even if, for the sake of argument, I mean, yeah. I don't have the numbers to hand, but oh, hypothetically, let's say there are five, perhaps there more, perhaps there's fewer trans students at Clare who are in college and feel differently, feel unsafe is there then in your view something to the argument okay it might actually be time for them to move on they've still got the right to freedom of speech but they've chosen to use it in such a way that it's just not tenable for them to do their job anymore yes in general of course it's just you can distinguish between the right to freedom of speech and the right to be employed by someone whilst whilst exercising your free speech um, so obviously many employers do have do have all kinds of restrictions on what you can say Whilst being employed by that by that um, firm, and that's not the same thing as a restriction of a right to free speech. Um, now, for universities, obviously the the uh, protections are, and I think should be um, much stronger. Um, nevertheless, of course, it's true in principle that there are things that one might say that will call one's employment in a certain place into question. I don't think this particular. So, in principle, something like that could happen. There's no doubt about that. It's just I think. A case like this one at Clare was just so obviously so far from anything like that um, uh, that the only way to look at it was not, you know, someone who used their speech to express certain awful prejudices, which means there's no way they could do their job. No, rather like someone who was questioning a certain kind of what has become orthodoxy these days, I'm afraid, at least among some groups, um, 
and uh, a mob, or rather a small mob, um, in the college decided to use that um, in order to victimise this person. That's what it seemed, because this person, you know, seems to have said things that were completely harmless. But, I mean, how can you know that for sure? I'm sure there must be at least some transgender students at Clare who must have felt very strongly about the matter, essentially, insofar as he, I think, was um, denying their existence in the sense of the way they understand who they are in a similar way as to you might deny a, a Christian's existence. This person has been doing his job for years. I mean, which part of his job would his saying those things stop him from doing? That would be the question. Uh, that's, that's a question I'd have to pose to people in the college. Dr. Arif Arbid, yeah. Yeah. thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And, and to you. Thank you. That episode of Insight Cambridge was produced and edited by me, Louis Wolfe. The music was Good Times by Boddington Bear. You heard there from the philosopher Dr. Arif Ahmed, who's also involved with the Free Speech Union. If you like that episode, subscribe so you don't miss the next one and share it with your friends. And you can get in touch on the Facebook or Twitter page to suggest what the next episode should be about. Take care and see you then.